0: Hello and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we continue the story of Ibn Battuta. He has proven to be quite the traveler. We have covered more than 20 years and gone from Morocco to Mecca to Persia to Africa to Turkey to the Crimea to Russia to Afghanistan and finally India. That's a heck of a ride. As always, I want to point out that there are maps of our Explorers travels on our website, ExplorersPodcast.com. I recommend you check them out. We had concluded our last episode with Ibn Battuta stuck in Calicut, pondering his future. He had lost all the valuable gifts intended for the Mongol emperor in Beijing, and he had lost most of his wealth, plus his companions, slaves, and concubines. He had next to nothing. He couldn't go back to Delhi as he feared the paranoid and unpredictable sultan, Mohammed bin Tughlaq, would not react kindly to Ibn Battuta's failures. And going back to the Middle East, penniless and humiliated, well, that held little appeal. Thus, he set his sights on China. He was, after all, still the official envoy of the Sultan to the Mongol Emperor. That was an important position. Why not try and fulfill that mission? And so, Ibn Battuta would get on a ship in Calicut, bound for the Maldives, and then Ceylon, or what we today call Sri Lanka. The Maldives are a few hundred miles south, then a bit west, of India. The islands had converted to Islam, from Buddhism, about 150 years earlier. They exported coconut fiber rope, which was important in holding together the Arab trading dowels, as well as cowrie shells, the latter of which were used as currency in some parts of Africa. The Maldives consist of 26 atolls, which stretch out north to south about 500 miles, or 800 kilometers. The islands cross the equator. An atoll, by the way, is a ring-shaped island, including a coral rim that encircles a lagoon. There can be coral islands on the rim of the atoll. And so, after several months in Calicut, Ibn Battuta took a ship south, arriving at one of the northern atolls in December of 1343. His Egyptian friend, Al-Tazuri, was with him. Now, the Maldives lacked anything that you would call city. They were, however, unified under a hereditary king. In the middle of the islands was Mali, which was the traditional home of the kingdom's ruler. When Ibn Battuta arrived in the Maldives, the ruler was not a king, but a queen, Rehendi Khadija, which means Queen Khadija. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Also, I want to note that the reign of Rehendi Khadija does not necessarily gel with the dates given by Ibn Battuta. I don't think people doubt he went to the Maldives, but there is some skepticism as to the events that occurred while he was there. No matter, I am going to report things as presented by Ibn Battuta. After arriving in the Maldives, he fell in, as he usually does, with the educated and scholarly types. Not long after arriving, he took a boat to Mali, there, he was taken into a thatched palace to meet the queen and her husband and chief advisor, Grand Vizier Mohammed el-Jamil. Now, before arriving on Mali, Ibn Batuta was warned not to talk about his past as a qadi or his position in the Delhi Sultanate. And that's because the islands lacked men versed in Islamic law. Being a land of many islands, without concentrated centers of population, meant it was difficult to attract and retain such scholars. He was warned that the Grand Vizier would install him as a cadi if he found out about his qualifications. Ibn Battuta's meeting with the queen and her spouse went well. There was an elaborate ceremony, followed by a meal of fowl, quail, and fish. For ten days, Ibn Battuta was fine and dandy, keeping his identity secret. But then another ship arrived on Mali, this one carrying Persian and Arab Sufis. Some of these men knew Ibn Battuta from his time in Delhi, and thus the secret was out the Grand Vizier was thrilled when he found out Ibn Battuta's true nature. To have a kadi of Muhammad bin Tughlaq in the court was a great prize. To try and entice Ibn Battuta to stay on the islands, the Grand Vizier thus flattered his distinguished guest with a lavish feast, plus gifts, including slave girls, pearls, and jewelry. At this time, Ibn Battuta fell seriously ill, possibly with malaria. By the time he recovered, he saw that the queen and the Grand Vizier were going to keep him there, so he decided to make the best of things. He became the chief kadi of the islands, and in February of 1344, he married a woman of noble status, thus allied himself with the royal family. All this made him very quickly become very powerful. He found himself to be a big fish in a small pond, the opposite of his time in Delhi. and he liked it. He dove into island politics plus his duty as a cadi. Regarding the latter, he found the Maldivians to be woefully lacking in following Islamic law. Thus he enacted or tried to enact, numerous laws to correct such things, and he was strict about it as well. He had the hand of a thief cut off, and one man caught not attending Friday prayers was publicly whipped and humiliated. Another thing he tried to change was an ages old custom of women going topless in public. He banned this saying, quote, I strove to put an end to this practice and commanded the women to wear clothes, but I could not get it done. As he states, some things were difficult to implement as he couldn't be on all the islands at once and trying to change centuries of customs was not that easy. Now, the interesting thing about Ibn Battuta was that while he was doing his duties as a judge, he was also getting involved in the politics of the islands, something he had learned in Delhi. As noted, he married not long after taking his position, but he would then follow up by marrying three more women, all related to important people, on the islands. These were strictly political moves designed to increase his power. He said, quote, after I became connected by marriage with the above-mentioned people, the vizier and the islanders feared me, for they felt themselves to be weak, End quote. Anyhow, despite all of these maneuvers, Ibn Battuta was not long for the Maldives. His problem seems to be that he pretty much upset everyone. His strict interpretation of Islamic law frustrated and angered many, turning the common people against him. He was just too keen to dish out punishment and change centuries of tradition. In reality, he seems to have treated the local people with a heavy dose of contempt. They were just primitive islanders and he was Mr. Big Shot Judge from the mainland. Who were these simpletons to question the great Ibn Batuta? Yeah, that's the sort of attitude that is going to upset pretty much everyone. Another thing, regarding the island's political elites, they quickly saw Ibn Battuta as a threat, which he admits he was. This included Grand Vizier Mohammed el-Jamil, who had eyes on his wife's throne. Well, things went downhill pretty quick in the Maldives. After his fallout with the Grand Vizier, Ibn Battuta seems to have seen the writing on the wall. He knew that he could not sustain his position much longer, and he resigned. He hopped a ride to another island and spent some time there while waiting for a ship to Sri Lanka. In all of this, he divorced all of his wives, including one who was pregnant. Marriage and divorce in the Maldives was common and easy. The men were fishermen and sailors, who moved frequently. They'd show up at a place, marry someone, then get a divorce when they had to move on. Ibn Battuta set sail for Sri Lanka in late August of 1344. He wanted to visit the island to make a pilgrimage to the top of Adam's Peak, a mountain in the southwest interior. The place is sacred to Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. The mountain is more than 7,300 feet high, or 2,200 meters. At the summit, there is a big depression that vaguely resembles a huge footprint. This is called Sri Pada, which means sacred footprint. Buddhists believe this to be the footprint of Buddha. Hindus say that it is Hanuman or Shiva. Islamic and Christian traditions believe it to be that of Adam, the first human, or St. Thomas. Ibn Battuta landed in Sri Lanka on the island's west-central coast. The local king welcomed him graciously, even supplying him with provisions for a journey to Adam's peak. Plus, he arranged for Ibn Battuta and his companions, which included Al-Tazuri, to accompany a larger group on a pilgrimage to the mountain. This included 15 Brahmin priests, 15 porters, and 4 yogis. The group camped three days near the peak of the mountain, and when they went to the top, people of all faiths went together in common cause. After descending the mountain, Ibn Battuta and his people went to the port of Dondra, then headed up the western coast, before catching a ship to the Mabar region, which is in the eastern side of the southern tip of India. However, as the ship approached the coast, a great storm swept across the water, The ship couldn't be controlled by the crew, and water started to fill the hull at an alarming rate. People started throwing anything they could find overboard to lighten the load, but it was to no avail. They were sinking. Ibn Battuta says that he got his companions into a raft, but there was no room for himself. So while the little boat made for the safety of the shore, he huddled aboard the ship, waiting for it to go down. The crew would fight through the night to keep the ship afloat, and miraculously, the vessel survived. And it was not long before a rescue party alerted to the ship's distress by Ibn Battuta's friends, arrived, saving everyone. Ibn Battuta had thus reached the coast of Mabar, alive and unharmed. He had, however, lost most of his personal stuff, but at least he had some pockets full of valuables, including some pearls and gemstones. Now, a quick note about Mabar. This area was technically called the Maduri Sultanate. It had revolted against the Delhi Sultanate in 1335. The sultan's daughter had been one of Ibn Battuta's wives, meaning he had relatives here, albeit ones who were reviled by his boss. Anyhow, Ibn Battuta would call on the local officials, who helped him re-establish his situation, and he even talked them into the idea of invading the Maldives. The plan was to install himself as ruler of the islands. However, events conspired against such a plot. The local sultan was hated by pretty much everyone. Ibn Battuta said the Sultan enjoyed riding out and finding Tamil villagers and impaling them on stakes. And then an epidemic struck the area, killing the Sultan, his wife, and son. A nephew took the throne, and a bloody purge of rivals began. Ibn Battuta and the new Sultan continued to plan an invasion of the Maldives, but our traveler again fell ill, probably a recurrence of malaria. By the time he recovered, Ibn Battuta did not trust the new Sultan and thus decided to get out of town. He wanted to go on to China, but there was a problem with this. The monsoon winds were pushing everything west, not east. So if he wanted to leave, and he definitely wanted to leave, he had to go backwards to the Malabar coast. Well, it was better than staying, so backwards went Ibn Battuta. He caught a ship to Quillan and then decided he wanted to go back to Hanover, where he'd spent a lot of time the past couple of years with the region's only Muslim ruler, Jamal al-Din. And so up the coast of India He went. And you're probably saying, what the heck? Can't this guy just get moving? And to that, I promise this dilly-dallying is going to end soon. So Ibn Battuta took a ship north to Hanover. However, not far from the port, his vessel was ambushed by a dozen pirate ships. The pirates overpowered the single ship and stole everything. This included Ibn Battuta's jewels, coinage, clothing, and provisions. Ibn Battuta said, quote, They left nothing on my body except my trousers, quote. Not all was bad, however. The pirates at least did not kill them. Instead, they dropped them off on the shore. And here was Ibn Batuta, penniless again, on the shores of the Malabar coast, and friendless as well. His longtime buddy, Al-Tazuri, got sick and died. Exactly when and where, we don't know, but the shadowy Egyptian is now gone from our story. So without any gifts or valuables to offer the ruler of Hanover, Jamal al-Din, Ibn Batuta made his way south to Calicut. There he found aid in the local scholars, getting food, shelter, and clothing. And it is here that our tale finally moves forward, but not in the way you'd expect. While in Calicut, Ibn Battuta found out that one of his wives he had divorced in the Maldives had given birth to a son. He decided he wanted to go and claim the boy, as was his right under Islamic law. Now, this is kind of odd, as Ibn Battuta had probably left all sorts of children along the roads he had traveled. But for some reason, he wanted this one, and thus he called a ship to the Maldives again. The end result was rather anticlimactic. Ibn Battuta's enemies in the Maldives were wary of him, but they listened to his petition. However, after meeting with the mother of his child, he, quote, deemed it fit for him to continue with the islanders, end quote. His stay on the islands lasted only five days. I get a feeling that he only went back to the Maldives in hopes of getting some sort of payoff to disappear, Perhaps he got a bag of pearls and a don't-come-back kick in the behind. Whatever the reason, he was off, and this time, his destination was China. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, Ibn Battuta was finally, really, getting moving to the far east. There would be no stopping in Sri Lanka or India, just an ocean voyage up the Bay of Bengal to get the ball rolling. The destination was the port of Chittagong in modern-day Bangladesh. That's a 2,000-mile voyage, or 3,200 kilometers, from the Maldives. Now, he could have gone across the Bay of Bengal and cut out this part of his journey, but that means he'd be missing out on visiting some new places. And let's remember, Ibn Battuta loves to visit new places. However, I really want to throw up a red flag about the events going forward. And that's because many historians are skeptical that Ibn Battuta ever went further east than Sri Lanka. Why? Well, it's the typical things that crop up in his book. We are talking about a 12,000-mile journey to one of the most amazing and mysterious places in the world. This is from the Maldives to Bengal to Sumatra to China, including Beijing, and then back. It would be the highlight of any book. Instead, the details are woefully lacking. The itinerary is vague and confusing. Dates are wrong or missing. Some information is flat-out inaccurate. It is just a lot of muddled stuff. And this is only reinforced when contrasting it to the rest of Ibn Battuta's book. This 12,000-mile section has little of the meticulous detail that you find in the other parts of the book, such as his time in India, the Maldives, and elsewhere. In fact, it only encompasses about 5% of the book, showing how underrepresented this part of the story is. Historians say a lot of the information presented here appears to be based on hearsay, and that means it's stories told to Ibn Battuta by others. And let's not forget, Ibn Battuta would have heard a ton of stories about China and the Far East. He had years and years of contact with sailors, merchants, scholars, and political appointees who had been all over the region. Now, despite all of this, there's a lot of information provided by Ibn Battuta. Maybe not in the detail we are accustomed to, but it's still there. Perhaps, for whatever reason, this section of the narrative got pruned by the man or his scribe. Author Ross E. Dunn, who wrote a book about Ibn Battuta's travels, had this line about this controversy, and I think it works great here. Quote, and so, honoring Ibn Battuta with the benefit of the doubt, we follow him, albeit warily, to Bengal and beyond. End quote. And so, off to China we go. The year was 1345. Ibn Battuta took a ship into the Bay of Bengal. The region of Bengal, which at the time occupied an area that sort of is the same as modern-day Bangladesh, was part of the Delhi Sultanate when it wasn't rebelling. It was the edge of Turkish and Persian influence. It was also the furthest east on the mainland Asian continent that Islamic law held sway. The area, however, had been notoriously difficult for the Sultanate to control. There were jungles and mountains and swamps, including the Ganges River Delta, to contend with. Parts of the region had rebelled against Muhammad bin Tughlaq during Ibn Battuta's time at court. A big reason Ibn Battuta wanted to go here was to visit a celebrated Sufi holy warrior, Shah Jalal, in the town of Silhet, up the Migna River. The man was reputed to have performed many miracles. Ibn Battuta arrived at the port of Chittagong, a bustling large trading center in the region. It is one of the world's oldest ports with a functional natural harbor, It even appears on ancient Greek and Roman maps, including Ptolemy's world map. It was located on the southern branch of the Silk Road. Ibn Battuta noted how active and alive the city was. Food was plentiful and cheap. Here he bought himself a beautiful slave girl. By the way, Ibn Battuta does note that he was not alone. He had some companions, as usual, but none of them are given a name in his narrative. Also, he purposely does not reveal himself to be an envoy of the Sultan in Delhi. He thought it wise to avoid being associated with the Tughlaq regime. From Chittagong, Ibn Battuta headed up the Migna River to Silhet. He then made a one-month journey through the mountains of Kamarupa, northeast of the city, where he ran into disciples of Shah Jalal. The disciples took Ibn Battuta to a mosque. Next to the mosque was a cave, and there lived Shah Jalal. The only thing he owned was a goat, which he kept for milk, butter, and yogurt. Ibn Battuta greeted the holy man, who received him with a warm embrace. Shah Jalal said he had foreseen the arrival of a traveler from Maghrib, meaning Morocco. This is why his disciples had found our explorer. He then asked Ibn Battuta about his home and his travels. Ibn Battuta noted that Shah Jalal was tall and lean. Others would come to the man in search of wisdom and guidance. Ibn Battuta spent three days at the hospice of Shah Jalal. When he departed, the holy man gave Ibn Battuta his blessing, as well as a fine white mantle or robe. After that, he retraced his steps to Chittagong and took a junk heading to the far east. Now, there are times in our narrative that Ibn Battuta provides limited information about his voyage. This is one of those times. For this leg of his journey, he went a 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers down the eastern coast of the Bay of Bengal, which would today be Myanmar. Somewhere along the way, the ship stopped at a port where Ibn Battuta tells of a local chief who wore goatskins and rode an elephant. The man extracted a tribute from all who landed and would put a curse on them if they did not pay the toll, which consisted of slaves, gold, and cloth. After that, they continued south, heading to the island of Sumatra and the Sumadera-Pasai Sultanate, which ruled the northern part of the island. This was the final outpost of Islam in Asia. Going forward, there will be no more sovereign Islamic states. The ruler of the Sultanate was al-Malik al-Zahir. Ibn Battuta said he was a pious and learned man, and the two enjoyed some lively discussions. Ibn Battuta continued his journey in April of 1346. The sultan outfitted a junk for our traveler and even sent along one of his administrators to help smooth things over as he approached China. From Sumatra, it was southeast for 21 days through the Strait of Malacca. After rounding the Malay Peninsula, it was on to Indochina, probably landing at what today is Vietnam. His exact route is difficult to pin down. Some people suggest that Ibn Battuta went to Java, others to Japan. It's part of that confusing narrative that I mentioned earlier. It's as if he was talking about other places, yet only based on descriptions he had been given by others. He knows the name and some tidbits about these places, but their locations are mystifying. No matter, Ibn Battuta would finally reach Chenzhou in the Fujian province of China in mid-1346 after 37 days at sea. He praised China as bountiful and thriving, mentioning silk, porcelain, and paper money. He also notes the robust shipping industry and says no land equaled China for its skilled artisans. Also, he was amazed at how civilized everything was, saying, quote, "China is the safest and most agreeable country in the world for a traveler. You can travel all alone across the land for nine months without fear, even if you carry much wealth." End quote. While in Chenzhou, Ibn Battuta trekked to the Mount of the Hermit and briefly visited a well-known Taoist monk who lived there in a cave. He was, however, as a devout Muslim unsettled by a society so devoid of Islam. He says that when he saw other Muslims, it felt like he was meeting his own family, which he had not seen in more than 20 years. In all the cities in China and along the route to India, he does note the growth of Islam. Most ports had Muslim-dominated neighborhoods, with mosques, hospitals, schools, and so forth. Muslim influence was regulated by the Chinese, but encouraged by the UN government. The Chinese understood that Muslim-friendly places would help encourage trade with the West, and they were right. These Muslim communities were thriving at this time, although much of that would go away with the ascendancy of the Ming Dynasty in 1368. Now, Ibn Battuta says that upon arriving in China, he had a very important decision to make. He had to decide when to reveal himself as the envoy from the Delhi Sultanate. The problem was that he didn't seem like a high and mighty envoy. It was just him and a handful of aides and whatever stuff he had accumulated over the past few months. That was not very impressive. Now, he did have one advantage, and that was that he had some connections in China. There were those envoys he had met and traveled with back in India, and there were other people, court appointees, merchants, that sort of thing. He even says that he ran into a man who had lent him money upon his arrival in India years earlier. On the advice of his contacts, he elected to announce himself to Chinese officials who promptly sent messengers to Beijing, which was roughly a thousand miles to the north, or sixteen hundred kilometers, as the crow flies. While he waited for a reply from the court of Togun Tumur, he made an excursion to the west, going to Canton, about three hundred miles, or five hundred kilometers, away. He spent two weeks at the home of a rich merchant while in the city, and then returned to Chenzhou. I want to remind everyone that Ibn Battuta was really good at this stuff. He had been doing this sort of thing for twenty years. Making new friends, extracting aid, that was all something he was a master at doing. He knew how to connect with others, even if he couldn't speak their language. Ibn Battuta eventually received word to proceed to Beijing. He said he traveled using China's river and canal system, including the Grand Canal, which was 700 miles from Hangzhou to Beijing. Now, I have to be honest. If Ibn Battuta's journey to the Far East offered up some red flags, this trek through China raises an even bigger red flag. Here he is going through some of the most populous and amazing places in the world, and he only mentions two cities, Fuzhou and Hangzhou. It just feels like there should be so much more. No matter, in Fuzhou, he encountered a merchant from Morocco named Al-Bushri. The two had met while Ibn Battuta had been stationed in Delhi. Al-Bushri was now a successful merchant. He gave Ibn Battuta a pair of slave girls and many gifts. But more importantly, he loaned Ibn Battuta money so he could obtain some nice things to give to the Khan when he arrived in Beijing. No one wanted to greet the Khan with substandard tribute. Also, al-Bushri would accompany Ibn Battuta on his journey to Beijing. Regarding Hangzhou, he talks about the city's immense size, calling it the biggest city he had ever seen. He said it was so large it would take a person three days to cross it on foot. The city also had a thriving Muslim and international community. He saw Muslims, Jews, Christians, Turks, and many other peoples of different races, religions, and nationalities. I want to add that all along this journey, Ibn Battuta said that he was treated well. He was given gifts and banquets and so forth. However, as I said earlier, his descriptions of China and these great cities lack the rich detail that you find in other parts of his book. Now, in his defense, he was limited by language and religion, he couldn't speak the local language, and his inability to find common cause with the populace would have made things difficult. No matter, Ibn Battuta next headed north on the Grand Canal to the capital of the empire, Beijing. On this leg of his journey, he talks about the industrious people and cities, and the endless fields with crops, flowers, and orchards. Each night, Ibn Battuta and his entourage would disembark their boat and stay with the local lord. Ibn Battuta reached the outskirts of Beijing, his boat dropping anchor about 10 miles from the city. A message was then sent to the palace of the Khan, and they waited. Once he was summoned into the city, he took up residence with a rich sheikh. Now, Ibn Battuta's time in Beijing would turn out to be a disappointment and highly suspect. When he arrived, he said that the Khan, Tamur, was gone out fighting a rebellious relative. Well, after a few days, word reached the city that the Khan was dead, killed in the fighting. The Khan's body was brought to Beijing. Ibn Battuta then goes on to describe an elaborate and accurate representation of a Mongol funeral rite. The problem is that Tumur didn't die until 1368, more than 20 years after Ibn Battuta's time in Beijing. This is a big reason that historians and scholars cast doubt about Ibn Battuta's trip to China, and especially his journey to Beijing. I mean, there is no way he could have attended the funeral of a Mongol Khan. Many people speculate that what he describes is from a ceremony of a previous emperor who had died in 1333. We ultimately don't know these answers, and I want to point out again that Ibn Battuta did not write this stuff down. A scribe, Ibn Juzay, did that. So, perhaps Ibn Juzay used other people's stories just to fill out the tale and say his subject had reached Beijing. After the funeral, Ibn Battuta said he was encouraged by friends to leave Beijing and China as disorder might grip the empire. Which is again a convenient way for him to cut short any talk of the city and its leaders. No matter, Ibn Battuta retraced his route and reached the port of Chenzhou on the southern coast of China. There he found a ship bound for the Samadura Passe Sultanate. His journey to China was now over. And that is where we will leave things for today. I will be honest, this part of our journey is in some ways disappointing. Ibn Battuta's book on his travels is often so rich in detail. Yet when we get to China, much of that is missing. And if there was any doubt about the authenticity of some of Ibn Battuta's stories, well, the inclusion of the Khan's funeral really clinches those doubts. No matter, these are some great stories, and it's a blast sharing them with you. Next time, we will get Ibn Battuta home, and then get him on his final great adventure, a journey to sub saharan Africa, including the legendary city of Timbuktu. I want to finish today with a shout-out to my wonderful patrons. That includes Arthur, Dan, Robert, Rudy, Andrew, Benjamin, Cameron, Catherine, Chris, Christopher, Collier, Craig, David, Amon, Eileen, Elizabeth, Eric, George, Gregory, James, John, Paul, Mitchell, Peter, Philip, Ralph, Susan, Thomas, and so many others. I am most grateful for your continuing support. I also want to thank everyone who has written to me. Some of you have offered up suggestions and ideas, which is great. Others just want to say thank you or share some way the show has affected their lives. There's some truly wonderful and moving stories people have shared with me. It's pretty amazing. Those sort of things keep me going. So, thank you. Anyhow, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other cool shows. If you love stuff from the ancient world, there's a couple of shows right up your alley. Find Faceoff wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.